Phobo. Have you heard of it? Do you suffer from it? Not FOMO, which may be better known, that is the fear of missing out, but FOBO. Anyone know what it is? It sometimes stands for the fear of being offline, but that's not the meaning I'm thinking of. FOBO is the fear of being ordinary. Any English rugby fans in the room? <laughs> I didn't think so. Forbes magazine wrote about it in August 2016. You're following the rules. You check all the boxes. You have a routine. You have a budget. You're living the dream, right? Not quite. You wonder, is this all there is when you come home after work? You see other people doing compelling, fascinating things, and you say to yourself, I wish that was me. You're afraid you're boring. Beige. Standardized, basic. You feel older than your age and you hate it. You've got a case of FOBO, fear of being ordinary. Now, it probably affects some people more than others. Me, in my book, there's nothing better at the end of a good evening in than sitting down by the fire watching BBC 10 o'clock news with a cup of tea before getting an early night. Some people might say I could do with more FOBO. My children often do. Sounding almost more scientific, it's been termed coinophobia. I always like to add another good new phobia to my already extensive list of them. It's from graphic designer John Koenig, who's come up with new words in his work, The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. New words for when we experience feelings that can't otherwise be described. It's worth a look. Google it. But coinophobia is the fear that you've lived an ordinary life. Does that strike a chord? I mean, what have you really done and achieved in your life? Who are you, if not ordinary? Some of you are now annoyed as you didn't realize you suffered from phobo until about two minutes ago <laughs> when I told you what it was, and I'm sorry about that. But it affects even those who in the world's eyes have achieved and been successful. Taylor Swift said, I'm intimidated by the fear of being average. I don't know if anyone has pointed it out to her, but anyway, we'll let her work it out herself. By the way, the only reason I know to quote Taylor Swift is because I have a teenage daughter. If you know who I'm talking about and you don't have a teenage daughter, you need to take a serious look at your music collection <laughs> and focus a bit of FOBO there. But this is just a crazy notion of the world, right? It doesn't affect Christians. It doesn't affect the church. Or does it? Michael Horton, a professor at Westminster Seminary, California, has written an insightful and challenging book called Ordinary. He doesn't pull any punches, and sometimes he might go a bit too far. But he writes, he writes, who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church and has ordinary friends and works an ordinary job. Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy and make a difference. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. Are we ordinary? Are we afraid of it? Are we always seeking something new, thrilling, challenging, radical, world-changing, or wishing we were more out there living on the edge? As a church, are we guilty of the same at times? What is the cure for FOBO? 
Well, let's turn to God's Word. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12 this morning. The words are on the screen, or if you have a Bible, you can follow along. And as we do in Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Take your seats. I'm going to look at this under two headings, very simply, who we are and what we are to do. So firstly, who we are. Peter starts with the word but. So immediately we have to remind ourselves of what has come just before and what David covered last week. Peter in verses 7 and 8 is talking about those who do not believe, those who do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord, those who stumble over Jesus. People who do not believe that Jesus is God's chosen Messiah, the Savior of the world. But when he turns to his readers, he draws a contrast. They are not like that. We, if we follow Jesus, are not like that. What are we like? Who are we then? Peter says that we are a chosen people. We are chosen by God. Try to let that sink in. We may have heard such words before, perhaps many times, but it should never cease to amaze us. What does it mean that God has chosen us? Does it mean that we are particularly worthy of being chosen? No. Does it mean that we deserved to be chosen? No. Does it mean that God knew who would choose to follow him and he chose us because of that? No. None of the above. Here's what should blow our minds. Before you came to Christ, before you were born, before your parents and grandparents were born, before Jesus came and walked this earth, before God called Abraham to follow him, before God made Adam and Eve, before God made the heavens and the earth, before anything was created, way before that, if your mind could even begin to conceive of that, God knew you and chose you. Remember back to when we considered our true ID when David spoke from Ephesians 1. Verses 4 to 6 say, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And Romans 8 continues this theme in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God foreknew us. And not in the sense that he just knew we would eventually choose to follow him. No, it means a foreknowledge in the sense of relationship. God was already in relationship with us before we even came to be. Why? 
Why did God choose you? What reason would he have? Is there anything notable or special in you that made him do it? No, as it says in Ephesians, he did it in love and for the praise of his glorious grace. When God chose the nation Israel, he taught them this in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. And Jesus makes it clear in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. We are a chosen people. We have been chosen by God. Do you know what it feels like not to be chosen? I'm sure we all do. We've all been passed over in areas of life at times. I remember back to the primary school playground, a brutal place. British Bulldogs, that great game before political correctness and health and safety kicked in and stopped all kinds of enjoyment like that. But two teams would be picked. David Miller and Ian Farr were always the team leaders because they were the two fastest runners in our class. And then they would pick in turn the next fastest, and the next, and so on. I was not a fast runner. And I would look around the group frantically as I hoped there was someone there that day who was slower than me so that I wouldn't be the last picked. And sometimes there was, and sometimes there wasn't. But I still remember the odd occasion out of the blue when one of the team leaders would pick me early on. It felt great. I was chosen, even though I was slow. It was probably the week I was having a birthday party and they wanted to be invited, but I didn't care. But how much more should it fill our hearts with gratitude and praise when the Almighty God, creator of the universe, tells us that He has chosen us? It is all of His free grace. It is because of His love for us. He has known you and me, anyone here who belongs to Jesus, from before this world came into being. That's who you are. You are chosen by God. That's not ordinary. Not by a long shot. Well, as if that wasn't enough, Peter's got more to say. He's far from done. God not only wants us to be in relationship with him, but he wants us to serve him with our lives. We are a royal priesthood. It's an unusual combination, royal priesthood. The Jews would have found it strange because the kingly line of Judah was separate from the priestly tribe of Levi. The Jews needed the priests to mediate for them before God. But us, we who follow Jesus, each and every one of us are now priests. We have such a close relationship with God through Jesus that we do not need any man to act as priest. Each of us are to draw near to God and serve him. The priests under the old covenant offered sacrifices of the blood and bulls and goats. But we are to offer ourselves, our lives, as living sacrifices, which is our worship to God, as Paul writes in Romans 12. As David said last week, we offer our lives, our worship, and our good deeds. And at this point, it's important to note that Peter, when he says you, is writing in the plural. Yes, these things are true for us as individuals who are following Jesus, but Peter is looking at the people of God and he's saying, church, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. 
This is not just something for the super spiritual. The pastors or the leaders of the church, those who want to be advanced Christians, each one of us here today who calls Jesus Savior and Lord are chosen by God and we are all together part of a royal priesthood belonging to his kingdom to serve our God together with our lives. Again, I ask you, does that make your life ordinary? Peter continues, you, church, each one of you are part of a holy nation. Peter's building on the themes he's already started on in chapter 1, where he reminds us of our calling to be holy as God is holy. God has chosen us not because we were different or good or holy, but he has chosen us to be different, to be holy, to be set apart for him. And Peter will go on in coming chapters to tell us more about what that practically looks like in our far from ordinary lives. Tell me, what is your prized possession? And okay, I know we shouldn't prize possessions or value them too highly, but most of us have probably got something we own that is dear and precious to us, something that we cherish, something that we protect, something that we would hate to be damaged. Can you think of anything yourself? Yes, I'm thinking of a certain titanium bicycle hanging up in the garage wall, way out of harm's way. I found a speck of dirt on her the other day and had to reach for the baby wipes. Anyway, you get the idea. But what is God's special, cherished possession? That which he would do anything to love, protect, care for, and keep secure. That which he would even die for. Peter says that we are God's special possession. Let that sink in. How can this be? The almighty creator God of the universe, who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, has chosen us in love. He has set us apart as his holy people to serve him, and we are his special possession. Not his ordinary possession. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Together then, who are we? A chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I dare you to have FOBO after hearing and realizing this. Could you be any less ordinary? Don't fall into the devil's trap of thinking there must be something more. Instead, what should our reaction be? Peter has no doubt. Knowing who we are should lead us to praise our incredible God. At the end of verse 9, all those things he has told us we are are so that we may declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. How often are you discontent with your life? How often do you grumble about what you have or don't have? Now, I am not in any way ignoring that many of us face incredible trials and difficulties in our lives. Not at all, because in the face of such, it can feel as if we are without hope. But even then, perhaps especially then, let us remember who we are. Let us remember what God has done for us. Let us remember that despite being completely unlovable and unworthy, he has given himself for us so that we can be his people, his special possession, and let us fulfill that which we were made for, 
That is to declare the praises of our God. What is man's chief end? That's it. When it comes down to it, why are we here? We are here to praise our God. The next time you feel your life is ordinary, that you're insignificant, that you have nothing to offer, remember who you are. It's not because of anything inherently special in you, but who you are to God. And don't let us ever wallow in self-focus or introspection, but let us look up and give thanks and praise to our wonderful, amazing, gracious God. I challenge you to memorize verse 9. It's not hard. Commit it to memory. Remind yourself each day who you are and why you're on this earth. So, what are we to do? In light of this, Peter starts verse 11 with, Dear friends, I urge you. He's showing them that this is something he cares about deeply because he cares deeply for them. All right, he's saying, you know who you are? You know what your purpose on this earth is? So how does it work out in your daily life? This isn't just a fuzzy feeling, something to feel good about on Sundays. How does it affect our daily lives? Edmund Clowney, writing on this passage, says, Peter presents the high calling of the people of God to prepare us for his instructions about our lifestyle. So now he returns to a theme he's already raised in chapter 1. As God's people, we are foreigners and exiles. Or as the AV puts it, aliens and strangers. Is that how you view yourself in this world? Foreigner, exile, alien, stranger. What does that convey to us? This world is not our home. We should not feel completely at home and comfortable in this world. It's not our final destination. We are not home yet. The analogy of traveling can help us here. When you're in a foreign country where perhaps the language is different, the food is unfamiliar, the customs and behavior are not what you're used to, do you feel at home? If you're lucky, you might have a nice hotel room to stay in and you may enjoy experiencing some aspects of the different culture. But are you totally relaxed as you are in your own country, in your own home? I imagine not. This past summer, as a family, we were privileged and blessed to spend a few nights in one of the most beautiful places on earth, Yosemite National Park. However, all was not perfect. In Yosemite, for conservation reasons, there is no air conditioning. The temperatures were around 30 degrees. We were all staying in one room in a cabin, one small room. There was a fan that tried to blow hot air over us. The first night, one of us had a loud nightmare about spiders. Another was snoring to the extent that we might have thought a Yosemite bear had joined us. One thought they smelled a forest fire and was up looking out the window at 3 a.m. And one couldn't sleep a wink and stubbed his toe, tripping over one of the five suitcases laid across every available inch of floor space. We had three nights to stay in this beautiful slice of paradise. How did we cope each night? Well, it was a beautiful place, but we coped because we knew it was temporary. It wasn't our home, thankfully. In this world, we are foreigners, exiles from another place. 
We're not citizens of the world. We are temporary residents. We're passing through. Yet the way we live and talk and carry about our daily business as Christians, it can seem that we try to deny these truths. We do everything we can to fit in without drawing too much attention to ourselves. We don't want to show ourselves to be strange and different. And this is, in some sense, a normal human reaction. We all want to fit in. We all want to feel like we belong. But we don't. And we never will. We are citizens of heaven. Remember again who we are, all that we've looked at this morning. We can never fit in and truly belong in this world. And in a way, getting our head around this, realizing it and accepting it, can actually be liberating. But don't feel isolated or disheartened. We don't fit in with the world around us, but we aren't alone. In our modern, individualistic, possibly self-focused culture, we lose sight of the importance of belonging together. Thinking back to who we are, you can't be the chosen people of God by yourself. It's only together that we are. The authorized version, instead of talking about God's special possession, talks about us being a peculiar people. Look around you. Are we a peculiar people? Okay, don't stare at any one person too long. The answer is that in all senses of the word, yes, we are peculiar. We are special to God together. We come together with all different kinds of strange and weird, with different backgrounds, different upbringings, different accents, different opinions. And I can tell you from my vantage point up here, vastly differing looks and styles. We don't belong in this world, but here is where we belong. Here, together, as different as we might be in all those ways, we are together God's chosen people, his special possession. And this is a place where no matter how strange or ordinary you might feel you are, you can belong. I read a really insightful piece written by Brenny Brown, who's a professor at the University of Houston. I'm reluctant to tell you where I read it, in case you laugh or scorn, but... Despite reading this on Oprah.com, I find it helpful. It's not a Christian source by any means, but listen to this. Contrary to what most of us think, belonging is not fitting in. In fact, fitting in is the greatest barrier to belonging. Fitting in, I've discovered during the past decade of research, is assessing situations and groups of people then twisting yourself into a human pretzel in order to get them to let you hang out with them. Belonging is something else entirely. It's showing up and letting yourself be seen and known as you really are. In recent weeks, we've been thinking about how we are a church without walls, with porous borders, a church where belonging is one of our key points in our mission statement. So this is a place where you can show up let yourself be seen and known as you really are. Yes, we have a definite center. As David reminded us, and to belong in the fullest sense, we put Jesus at the center as our Savior and Lord. As David said last week, it's all about Jesus. But moving on, Peter gives us a warning. What are we to do? We're to abstain from sinful desires. Why? Why? Because they might upset us, 
because they have the potential to cause us some damage, maybe reduce our self-esteem, or because they aren't really the best for us, they aren't the ideal thing to pursue as Christians. Peter doesn't pull his punches. Abstain from sinful desires because they wage war against your soul. Sometimes when I'm cycling to and from work, it feels as if I'm in a bit of a battle with some of the motorized vehicular traffic at times. What would you recommend I do if I happen to see a large, fully loaded HGV bearing down on me coming direct at me? Should I hold my line after all? I like to think I'm a fairly strong cyclist. Or should I wait until the last moment before coolly veering out of its way, see how close I can get and still avoid it? No, not at all. No matter how strong or experienced a cyclist I might think I am, if I see a megaton lorry heading straight for me, I'm getting off the road immediately and not taking any chances. Why? Because it might upset me, might reduce my self-esteem, might cause a bit of damage. No, because it would wage war on my fragile body. So I take no chances and immediately get out of the way. But so often, we take those chances with sin. We think we are strong Christians so we can handle a bit of temptation. We'll not let it really damage us and we'll dodge out of the way before it gets to a serious level. Oh, how we fool ourselves. Peter, I think we can all agree, was really a quite strong Christian. He's got good credentials. Apostle who directly heard Jesus' teaching, started churches, preached at Pentecost, wrote two books of the Bible. And what does he say? Peter knows all about the dangers of sin. Peter was not perfect. He says, get out of the way of sinful desires. Right now, don't mess about. Don't kid yourself that you can handle it. Have nothing to do with it. It's a war we're engaged in. And so often we think we're warring against that outside ourselves. We're at war with the external world, that world in which we are aliens and strangers. And that is true. But the greatest battle of this war is against the flesh, against our own sinful nature, against the sinful desires that wage war against our soul. God's chosen people his holy nation, his special possession, his people who are not of this world, we do not take sin lightly. We are in a war. How do we fight that war? I would take you back to Ephesians 6, which David spoke on in the True ID series. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Having looked at what we could call a negative aspect, Peter then gives us a positive instruction. He tells us what sort of lives we are to live. And given our fear of being ordinary, Peter tells us to live spectacular, dramatic, legendary, fulfilling, exciting, world-changing, radical lives. No, he doesn't. He tells us to live good lives, beautiful lives, attractive lives, how do we do that? What does that entail? What do you mean, Peter? What are the detailed instructions? He doesn't give that to us here, but this is like a header, a teaser for what will come. And in coming weeks, when David takes us further in First Peter, we'll learn more of what we're specifically to do to live these good lives. 
But Peter does give us an encouragement to do this. It's not to gain our salvation or favor with God. We're already God's special possession through His grace. But we are to live such good lives amongst the watching world before those who don't believe that although they'll still try to point the finger and accuse us and pull us down, that they will in the end see our good deeds. That it will be undeniable that we are different. That we are set apart for God. And that they will glorify God on the day he visits us. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that some come to faith. They come to know God as he visits them. Or it could mean that at the end of time, as they come before God in judgment, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Perhaps it means both. But what is without doubt is that good lives lived by God's people bring glory to him. That's what we're to do. So as we conclude, I hope you've learned the cure for any phobo that might still be lurking within you. If you think you're ordinary, God doesn't think that. Yes, there's nothing in and of ourselves that is worthy or special, but let us remember who we are before God. We are chosen by God. In his love and grace from the beginning of time, we're chosen to serve him by our lives being living sacrifices as we're part of a royal priesthood. We are set apart as a holy nation and we are God's special possession. Does that not fire your soul? Does that not change your view of your so-called ordinary life? Does that not move your heart to praise our amazing, gracious, loving God who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light? As we praise him here together as the people of God who belong with each other and as we walk out this door into a world where we're only strangers passing through, let us never forget who we are. Let us never stop praising our great God. Let us stand strong in his strength in the battle against sin and let us live such beautiful, extraordinary, yet still ordinary lives, good lives before the world, that they see God's work in us. And in his grace, others may come to praise him too.